Hello everyone, this is Jack with the Book Club from Hell, and before we start this episode, I would like to make a brief announcement. We have chased meaning away, in its place grows the tower, always expanding and leaving blissfully fulfilled employees in its wake. I am a doctor who specialises in souls, a potent advertising slogan leaves ripples in the world of the spirit. Love is remembered, maybe S was responsible for everything, but who else do I have? Blending Franz Kafka, Mikhail Bulgakov, Jacques Ellul, and Stalker, Shadow of Chernobyl, Tower is a search for meaning in a world no longer organised for humans. So goes the blurb for my upcoming novel, Tower, to be released in November 2023 and available on my website, www.jackbc.me, that is, www.jackbc.me. Thank you. Jack. Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with The Book Club from Hell, a physiognomic history research institute. This week, we're starting a multi-part series on the first volume of The Decline of the West by Oswald Spengler. Spengler was born in 1880 in the German Empire, completed a PhD program and worked as a high school teacher before retreating into a private, lonely life of study uninterrupted by the First World War, as Spengler was unable to serve in the military owing to a heart condition. The result of this study was the first volume of The Decline of the West, published in 1918 to immediate success, making Spengler a well-known figure. In the tumultuous years of the Weimar Republic, Spengler continued to write and continued to find a wide audience, both within Germany and in other countries. Critical of liberalism and capitalism, Spengler also found Nazism a vulgar, demagogic mass movement and was unimpressed by Adolf Hitler after meeting him in person in 1933. Spengler died of a heart attack in 1936, predicting that in 10 years, the German Reich wouldn't exist and that the West would inevitably enter a period of Caesarism, foreshadowed by figures such as Benito Mussolini and Cecil Rhodes. And what is the decline of the West? A frighteningly ambitious work of history and philosophy, wherein Spengler proposes a morphological model of history which would allow us to reconstruct past cultures and predict the future, based on the knowledge of a given culture's soul. This episode, we'll be covering the first three chapters of the first volume of The Decline of the West. In two or three weeks, we'll have another Spengler episode on chapters four, five, and six. So, if you're ready to understand how physiognomy doesn't just apply to humans, but to cultures as well, then listen on. Enjoy. So this is the beginning of our The Decline of the West Odyssey. This book is, well, this pair of books, because it comes in two volumes, is long, dense, extremely German, <laughs> and quite alien in, in some of the concepts it presents, or the, the approach to the world taken by Spengler. Also because he loves... He loves coining new terms for things, which are which are pre-existing words. I wonder what it's like in German, actually. It might just be a, an artifact of translating it into English. But at least a lot of the terms he'll use, like soul, world, proper, alien, being, becoming, have different meanings to the meanings that those words have in everyday speech, which is also a difficulty with Spengler. He also will sometimes use these words extensively and then, like, 50 pages later, explain what he means by them. And I was listening to a German speaker talking about Spangler and even he said that Spangler in the original German 
will just create neologisms or just mash words together and like just hyphenate. So mm. he's mm. trying to like, he'll hyphenate like two or three words together in German and then translating that into English is then another step of um, <laughs> obscurity. So yeah, is uh, it's an interesting book. It's It's pretty dense. It's taking a while to read. It. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> slow going for me. It does take a while, and which is why we've split this or we'll split this into multiple episodes because yeah. there is no way we could read through the entirety of volume one of The Decline of the West <laughs> for, a, for a single episode. It would be- Volume one and volume two, single oh, yeah. episode. Nine, <laughs> just like nine hours long or something of me and Jack just a marathon. Well, that's the thing. It's both for, for our sanity. This is just not the sort of book I could read in two weeks and then do an episode on. And also the the quality of the episode we would give it probably be pretty low. We would have to skip over so much stuff to to fit it even into five hours or something. Probably wouldn't be that good a listening experience either. I imagine it's going to be a lot more digestible splitting it up. So for this episode, we're going to do the yeah. first three chapters of the first volume of The Decline of the West. So there's two volumes, right? Yeah. Volume yeah. one is called Form and Actuality. Mm-hmm. What's volume two called again? Sorry. Something like world historical perspectives. Yeah. I think. Let me have a look. Yeah. Perspectives of world history. So, yeah, this is a little bit different to our other episodes. Uh, More like, it'll be more like the Evola episode because with most of our other episodes, we're able to read the entire book and then produce the episode. Mm. Uh, So, with this one, we are kind of learning as we go with with the series much more like the evola um episode where uh oh wait well i guess we never really released we only released episode 2.5 of evola. we really need to go back and read, <laughs> keep, redo keep evola. my audio of that episode <laughs> yeah we really need to redo our um revolt against the modern world episode we need to redo a few of our earlier episodes yeah yeah Shout out to past Levi and past Jack for putting in the effort. <laughs> you get you get a participation award. <laughs> so, um, yeah, should we get into it? I think a good place to start is a really quick biography of Spangler to sort of position him in history and uh, talk a little bit about like what problem we think he's trying to solve and then we can yeah. just jump straight into it, hey? So... Oswald Spangler <laughs> was a German. Um, he was uh, born in 1880 and died in 1936, which I found really interesting. He was pretty young when he died. He was mm-hmm. like 55 or something. Um, he was a mathematician, and that definitely comes through a lot in the way that he, he tries to yeah. think about things. Um, uh, he was also a politician, and what is this type of philosophy? Is this just like... Is this like existentialism or phenomenology or something or historiography? I don't know. It's a it's a mixture of weird things. I'm I'm not sure which which school of philosophy specifically it would fit into. It definitely has strong elements of phenomenology, in historical it. phenomenology or something like that. Yeah, like Spengler was he was part of the conservative revolution in Germany, which in was Germany. Yeah, it was this movement in Germany between the end of the First World War and until the early to mid-1930s when the the Nazis really took power and cracked down on basically intellectual movements that weren't Nazism. And the, the conservative revolution was 
a group of thinkers who were fairly heterogeneous in what they thought, but were unified by sort of their, their posture towards the world in that they, they didn't trust democracy, so they, they really didn't like the direction that Germany had taken after the First World War, particularly didn't trust mass democracy, oftentimes mm. were quite concerned about the effect of, of technique technology on society. Spengler himself has a book, I think it's called Man and Technics or something like that, which which <laughs> goes over such concerns. They tended to be quite suspicious of applying science to the entire world. There was a sense in many of them of looking for some sort of spirituality that could survive the the horrors of the First World War, which for mm. many of them really, really mm. shook shook their idea of mm. Sort of, of of access to spirituality by humans. If it gives people if it gives people a better impression of of this movement, Ernst Junger was also quite prominent in the conservative revolution and definitely typified it. That he was very much at home in that cultural milieu. So one of the important points to note about about Spangler in particular is that he wasn't a Nazi. So <laughs> no, no, that clear historically, like he was critical of Hitler. So firstly, he died in thirty six. Um, so there's that. Uh, two, when I looked into it, he never joined the party, um, mm-hmm. and his books were actually, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, his books, maybe not all of his books, but at least some of his books were banned by the party. And I assume that fits into what you were saying about the conservative thinkers being, um, I guess, sceptical of mass democracy and where it was going in Germany. So I guess a really important point to note is that our experience of democracy is not the same experience of democracy as Europeans in, the say, the early 20th century. Say, democracy, as we read, um, mine were of comfort. Democracy in Spain led to, well, can, well, was part of the story of the Civil War, right? And democracy in Germany was part of the story of the Nazi power's rise. Um, so their relationship and scepticism of democracy is, is, I think, historically positioned against the backdrop mm. of like these ri- rising authoritarian, uh, you know, strongmen, essentially. Yeah, the relationship of Spengler and the broader conservative revolution to Nazism is interesting in that the Nazis did really suppress the, co- the conservative revolution when they came to power, including like in the Night of the Long Knives in 1934, some of them, I think Edgar Jung was a prominent thinker in, in the conservative revolution who was killed by the SS. So they were definitely targeted by the Nazis. Also because many of them, of course there are exceptions like Carl Schmitt who ended up embracing the regime and even after the Second World War resisted all attempts at denazification. Many of them regarded fascism broadly and specifically Nazism as these demagogic mass movements and not at all spiritually elevated and basely biological in their focus on biological race. When it comes to Spengler specifically and not the conservative revolution as a broader movement, pretty sure Spengler voted for Hitler over Hindenburg in the the 32 presidential election in Germany. However, he was never 
really convinced of Nazism and yet wrote, wrote against particularly its demagogic character, its, its biological character. We'll get to him talking about capital N nature versus capital H history, from which his, his aversion to the, the materialist biological obsession of Nazism becomes quite clear. You can definitely see in this book why he would have problems with that. Interestingly, too, he also saw the saw people like Mussolini, Hitler, Cecil Rhodes as well as as a coming generation of Caesarists. So he believed, and we'll mm. get into mm. this in probably more subsequent episodes because he doesn't talk about Caesarism much in the first three chapters of the Decline of the West, but. There are, there are distinct stages of civilizational or cultural life cycles, and one of the terminal stages is Caesarism, where you have these, these personally popular leaders accruing power to themselves. And he, he saw the fascists as sort of precursors to that Caesarism, which he also didn't like very much. He saw it as inevitable, but he wasn't happy with it. So he's... he's Relationship to Nazism is interesting, but to call him a Nazi is, uh, is to really miss the point. I think the people who call Spengler a fascist have never actually bothered reading anything he's written. Which is definitely a recurring pattern of people <laughs> who call, a who call people uh, Nazis and fascists. <laughs> Unlike <laughs> listeners to this podcast and me and Jack who have actually read The Doctrine of Fascism <laughs> yeah. and, and related books. Uh, yeah, Spengler is not a, not a Nazi. No, he's far from a fascist. Yes. <laughs> I think part and, of it is yeah. whenever you have someone who starts bringing up buzzwords that fascists like like describing things as organic talking about decline narratives things like that then i think there's there's a subgroup of people who hear that and just think fascism now just before we get into the content of the book or yeah the the content um i want to say that this is a difficult book and it's extremely different. <laughs> Even though there might be parallels to something like Evler, it's extremely different to pretty much everything that we've read. Uh, and it's also extremely different to the way that I see the world. But having said that, <laughs> it's also like it's it's also quite interesting. Um, and I can see why people have become fascinated with the book. Um, yeah, it's really it's it's a really interesting read. Hard, hard, yeah. and it de- it has definitely required me to do like reading outside of the book itself to try to get my head around what he's trying to say. <laughs> he demands a lot of you. I find this really, <laughs> yeah. really fun. In terms of what he believed, he's not very similar to Evola, but I definitely got Evola vibes from this in that he produces a highly internally consistent system of thought, which is perched upon a, f- a few first principles, which he doesn't really examine, and he just says... But if you say to yourself, okay, well, I'm just going to accept that these things are the way that Spengler says, for example, his ideas of being and becoming, which we'll definitely get into, we'll discuss at length. If you just accept those things, everything else starts to make sense. Yeah. And if you just accept his methodology as well, he also says, this is the way that you understand history. And that's it. He doesn't really explain why. He just says, this is the way that you do it. And then he goes on to do it. (laughs) <laughs> oh fuck! It's it's even worse than that because he'll do things like so. Chapter two of 
of this book is the the big filter for a lot of people who try to read it, where he starts talking about numbers. <laughs> and in that section, he uses the terms history and nature extensively, but it's only mm. in the third chapter that he really concretely defines what they mean. <laughs> so I, I reread the second chapter of this because it makes so much more sense in light of the third. And I, I think that's- like flipped it around. It's just actually, in terms of the craft of writing, I think that was just a mistake. I don't even think that's the difficulty of his ideas. He just he just used just terms and up. then explained them like 50 pages later. Yeah, that's a bit silly. So the other thing to note is that he took 10 years to write this book. Oh, it is um, a, it's a colossal intellectual achievement. And he's obviously very erudite and very, um, what would you say, historically aware, at least of mm. Western European culture. And to a degree, like, well, I guess we'll see. I haven't read that much further but presumably other cultures as well kind of like evola like knows a lot about history mm. and stuff um and comparative culture and anthropology it's really so it's really interesting from that point of view yeah i'd say with evola and spengler what they believed were quite different but they're the, they're the same Extremely. character class like different builds but definitely yeah. they picked the same starting class they're cl- clerics with a specialization in like scripture. Yeah, their, their law stat is crazy. Their law stat, yeah. Specialization in law. Um, yeah, so yeah, really interesting. Should we get into it? Yeah, actually, one thing before we start is talking about why he started writing The Decline of the West because that's really interesting. And he yep. goes over it, I think it's in the introduction, the introductory chapter, where. In, I think he began writing it in 1911, and he felt that there was inevitably going to be a, a huge war on the European continent, which, which there was. And he was trying to understand why this war was going to inevitably happen, and so started writing a book which, which would later become The Decline of the West with that more narrow focus in mind of explaining why there was going to be a catastrophic war in Europe and the more he wrote about it, the broader and broader the scope of the project became until eventually it, t- it turned into, I am going to make a theory of morphological history, which will, <laughs> allow- <laughs> which will allow us not merely to understand the soul of history, of these different great cultures through history, not only will it allow us to, from, frag- from archaeological fragments, allow us to reconstruct past cultures but also allow us to predict the future. So the, 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 the creep in scope was huge. Maybe no one has ever experienced feature creep in the same way as Spengler when he was trying to explain <laughs> why the First World War was going to happen. Uh, the, the other interesting thing to note is um, he decided... I think he says at the beginning of the book, he decided on the name. Well, in my copy of the book, I think it's in the preface or something. He decided on the name of the book at the beginning of the project. And then he kept that name the whole time. So he also, he spent 10 years kind of writing this book and not really changing his mind as well. (laughs) (laughs) It is interesting reading it as well because of how he writes he does repeat himself a lot or explains the same concept over and over again which is why my notes at the beginning of chapters tend to be quite dense and then 
thin out a lot as the chapter goes on because he's explained a lot of things fairly of early on and then just kind of repeats himself. I wonder to what extent, this is almost certainly reading into it a bit too much, but in the process of writing, he gets down what he thinks and then is just basically masturbating for the rest of it, just egging himself on. It's like, yeah, this, this idea of morphological history is so good. Saying it over and over and over again to himself, convincing himself further that he's completely right. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the other thing to note is he's been pretty heavily influenced by a few key thinkers and he really <laughs> likes bringing, he bringing them up. He loves Goethe. He loves Goethe. There's some other people who influenced him that he mentions, and uh, but at this point in the book, he's mainly just obsessed with Goethe. So yeah, maybe we'll bring that up as it becomes relevant. But that's definitely one of the things. Like, oh yeah, well Goethe said this. <laughs> it's like, all right, he, all right. <laughs> uh, he, he can't go for more than a page or two without mentioning Goethe and how how Goethe is just so good. Actually, it's it's Goethe and Kant that he mentions the most. Kant he when really he's just Kant. firing shots at him, and mm. Goethe when he's talking about how much he Kiss loves him. Like, bring up the critique of pure reason and why why it's wrong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is why it's wrong. Okay, so cool. Any any other preface thoughts before we go into introduction? No, let's let's go to the introduction. So the first the first chapter is the introduction. This being Decline of the West, the, the introductory chapter is really long and quite dense. And one of the more confusing parts of the book in that it kind of just starts in medias res. He just jumps in and starts throwing <laughs> around words like culture and civilization, organic, inorganic, world historical perspectives, symbolism, being, becoming. In the idiosyncratic way that... He uses yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> these words don't mean what you what they normally mean. Granted, he he uses them consistently. You do pick up on what they mean. What he's doing is he's setting out his project and basically saying in this first chapter that everybody else has gotten history wrong, and lucky lucky for us. Oswald is here to set the record straight as to Papa what history is. And Sit he down, sees children. this, yeah, he <laughs> sees around this the fire book as the next fifteen hours. <laughs> yeah, he sees this book as the the beginning of the study of morphological history. And while he's he's extremely sure of himself for most of this book, he does at the very beginning acknowledge that while his that the fundamentals of his theory are correct, but maybe some <laughs> of the details won't be. And so this is an imperfect um, establishment work, a, a work of establishing a new field, which will be perfected later. He truly seemed to believe that in the century or so after the publication of this book and its, its second volume, there would be a greater... Um, that, that would begin the, the physiognomic analysis of historical <laughs> morphology. As everybody knows on this show, we love physiognomy. <laughs> and again, physiognomy is like it it has a meaning in everyday speech. If you're like if you're like us and you use the term physiognomy daily. 
<laughs> physiognomy and miscegenation daily. <laughs> but physiognomy has quite a different meaning in, in the context of the decline of the West. So he's setting out his project of truly understanding history, not understanding history in a, a material or a rigid sense, but in an organic sense. Yeah. And this understanding so, of history feeds into your, your entire worldview as well. It's not limited to understanding the past as a, as a catalogue of events. It's much more all-encompassing than, than what we might mean by history when we use that term in an everyday sense. Yeah. So one of the, the questions that we've been asking, I ask myself when I try to read these sorts of books and we ask on this show as you might have noticed the last few months, is uh, what's the person's problem? And I thought at first um, Spangler's problem that he's trying to answer is almost like historical prediction. He's trying to like make grandiose predictions about where the world is going and kind of um, embed them in a kind of deterministic law, like almost um, like uh, physical laws, like you can tell the project trajectory where a ball will go if you know its conditions um and its trajectory and so forth so that's kind of what i thought at the beginning but i i think it's a little bit deep it's a like yes yeah. that that's kind of a consequence of what he's laying out but it's actually a little bit i think on a on a more modest level he's also just trying to like reading between the lines i kind of see him as actually trying to just understand what's going on in Europe and especially Germany. Like he's almost just trying to make sense of what the hell just happened with World War I and, and trying to embed that in like a, a, a larger narrative of history, which in part is like explanatory of the past say, of Rome, the rise and fall of Rome. Um, but it's also like, well, does that same thinking apply to the rise and fall of what we're seeing now in, in, in mm -hmm. Europe and Western civilization? So I think the predictive, the historical predictions or the historical determinism in his cyclical structure of history is almost, it's actually secondary. And so people might know him or have heard of this work because the decline of the West and the idea of cycles of history and that sort of stuff. But as I'm reading more of it, it almost becomes a little bit, it's, it, that's something that falls out of the rest of the structure rather mm -hmm. than being mm -hmm. kind of a, the, the primary problem that he's trying to solve. Yeah. So how about we define being and becoming straight away? <laughs> my, favorite, my favorite way. To, <laughs> those are favorite really concepts in all of philosophy. <laughs> whenever, so, whenever, uh, whenever a philosopher mentions being, becoming, the becoming, the 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 being that has become the world of being, <laughs> I just <laughs> I just have to like buckle down, get a coffee, and go. All right, all right, come on, Levi, you can you can fucking do it. <laughs> We've heard different <laughs> interpretations of these concepts, most notably Evola's. And it is interesting to compare and contrast the the being and becoming of, of Evola and Spengler. For Spengler, becoming is the good stuff and being is less good, whereas for Evola, becoming was, was not good, not perennial, and being was great and and very perennial. So for Spengler, becoming is an, it's, it's the process inherent in organic things. 
And when he says organic, he doesn't mean in the sense of organic chemistry or something like that. It's a more metaphysical term of something that is that is interconnected, something that hasn't been subjected to the rigidity of conceptual categorization, something that is evolving, something that is living not in a, a biological sense, but something that is living in that it is it's constantly changing. All of its parts refer to each other. And something that has a life cycle that is predictable. And in the in the process of being, being sloughs off things which which cease to change, which are inorganic, and those things are oh so when becoming is in the process of becoming, it sloughs off these things that are unchanging and no longer living, and those things are being, or synonymously, the become. More concretely, he talks about history and culture through the context of being and becoming. So each, each great culture is animated by a soul, and this soul is a, it is a becoming thing. It's this living thing. And we can get into the mechanics of how precisely this this soul becomes. It has it has sort of an internal logic which it inexorably follows in trying to actualize itself in the world. And as soon as it actualizes anything in the world, that actualized thing is no longer becoming. It's no longer organic and changing and living. It becomes a fixed become entity. And those become entities can be uh, the external features that we normally think of as cultures. So things like, Mm. for example, languages, architecture, mathematics, those are all fragments of the become sloughed Mm. off by the being of whatever culture underpins them. What's um, important to note is this divide in philosophy goes back quite a while <laughs> and it's, yeah. I, I kind of substitute, it might not be a perfect way to think about it, but I substitute in the word change for becoming mm-hmm. and um, uh, the word, I suppose, static or non-changing or no, maybe a better word would be eternal. So like the, the changing or the eternal. And so there's, there's, almost like a, an argument amongst philosophers and this tends to be something that like has exited from sort of mainstream science because it's just gone down a different path but definitely seems to be i think still spoken about today in modern philosophy but there was this period of time in sort of like the 19th and 20th centuries where um philosophers were really getting heated about like what would you say like the the order of precedence like what's what's more primary, being or becoming? Mm. There's actually a mm-hmm. whole school of philosophy called um, progress, pro- progression philosophy, or something like that. Um, which I think, like, if you've heard of Alfred North Whitehead, and like, there's some other famous philosophers who are trying to um, like explain the world as process. Or sorry, not progress philosophy, process philosophy. Um, and so. Some philosophers, if you put them on this, like into this categorization, you'd say, like, are they prioritizing the eternal or the become, or are they prioritizing the becoming, 
the change are like mm-hmm. which one is anterior to which and say evola was saying like the eternal the abstract or whatever are is like antecedent to the illusory mere appearances of the changing world spangler mm. is the opposite way around <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and he's saying actually like the being is anterior and is somehow like more the, the becoming is anterior to being. sorry yes yeah, sorry, sorry the becoming is anterior um and so with that in mind like as jack was saying like what's the driving force of a culture say going all the way back to aristotle when he was talking about like evolution and the change of living beings and how like the world is always in flux. I think it was Aristotle who was saying that. I have to double check my Greek philosophers. There's this, there's this question that arises, which is like, what is like, what is changing? (laughs) And Aristotle introduced this idea of essences. There's like the essence of the thing. And then there's like what we see is changing, but there's like some core essence. Hmm. You can please feel free to interject at any point if I'm fucking yeah. this up, Jack, because I always this this stuff always like uh gets me I have to be careful not to just like talk in circles. <laughs> yeah, and that is I think that's also inherent to splitting the world into being and becoming and then trying to find which one is anterior to the other is it always leads or it, it very easily leads to circles. In explaining to people the differences in in Spengler's terminology, I think it's one approach we could take would be to try to offer some sort of abstract definition of the the things. And he tends to offer these concepts in pairs, which yeah. tend which tend to line up against other pairs within Spengler's philosophy. We could offer that and then offer examples. And continue referring to things as as being or becoming, for example, as we talk sure. about different parts of this book. <laughs> because also how, how Spengler imparts information is is much more in that form, in that he'll he'll somewhat explain what he means by something, but you more develop a sense of what he means just from the the volume of examples that he he offers to you. Yeah. And can I can I just make one point as well, just before we keep on doing that? Like um, for anybody who's studied, like I'm not a mathematician and I haven't done a huge amount of math, but I've done just enough maths as part of my engineering studies to have some sense of like one of the key things that mathematicians do, and you do it in computer science as well, I suppose, is you try to find correspondences between structures. So say like, um, well, I mean... God forbid I try to explain something like that <laughs> That over an audio. Like, it's much easier to do it visually. Um, but you can say, like, find correspondences between, say, like, mathematical structure A, like a graph, or, and mathematical structure B, like, I don't know, like a, a, a series of logical statements or whatever. Um, and these correspondences need to be proved, like, quite rigorously in mathematics. Um, and you need to do, like, this entire theory of proofs about like how you do proofs, you know, what is, you know, do you have like the, like what laws of logic are you applying? And that leads to like different proof theorems and that sort of thing. Um, So Spangler comes from a mathematics background and what he's, he kind of implicitly in the way that he's thinking, he sort of alludes to it, but he's sort of trying to apply this idea of finding correspondences between structures 
which I think he got not from even his a, Not even alludes to it. He's quite explicit. But he says the way to do that when it comes to history is you, you reason by analogy. Yeah. And yeah. so that's the word that he uses is analogy. And so he's finding correspondences. The issue, and I don't want to spend too much of this episode criticizing Spangler, is that like the rigor that he would bring to bear being a professional mathematician, which I can only assume like if he did spend some time as a professional mathematician, like he knows the sort of rigor that you have to bring to bear on mathematics in order to make progress. It's almost like he he brought the idea of cor- finding correspondences between things, but it's like, I guess maybe in his argument for like, he's being rigorous, his his two volume text, like how many hundreds of pages it is, is being rigorous. But it's it's kind of like a different, it's quite different to what you would expect from mathematics because in mathematics you like try to say like refute, um, I don't know, like counter like statements and that sort of stuff. Um, whereas in this, there's a lot of him just like, here's the analogy, here's me reinforcing the analogy, here's another analogy where I can find another correspondence. And um, it's like very, very, very broad brushstrokes correspondences between things, which he calls like essentially like historical understanding through, through analogy. Yeah, I'm trying to think of how to approach explaining things or what to approach first. So with Spengler... So many of his concepts are highly interconnected, and I think intentionally so. Yeah. And explaining any one of them or a I've pair got- of them, because as I said earlier, they tend to exist in pairs, often requires reference to other things. But how about we just I've we, got we key explain and I can we go through concepts and explain them. And when they refer to other concepts, we can put a pin in that and then use that as a jumping off point okay. to explain those those dependent concepts. I can read out the key concepts I've got and why don't we just pick one of them that we think is a good place to start and go from there. What about first, I, could, I offer a, a really high-level view of what he's, of the system he's trying to fit all these concepts into to give people a bit of context. Okay. Because what he's basically trying to do is he says that every, that you have in history a variety of great cultures, he calls them. And these great cultures are actually these, they're these organic entities which have, which have a soul and um, or, or almost in, internal feelings and an internal logic to them. They, there are the, they're these collections of potentialities which in existing as as becoming entities, as these organic changing entities actualize themselves in the world. That is to say, they they slough off these static become objects, these actualizations in like space. Art, mathematical forms. And yeah, these things are, for example, their sense of numbers. Literature. Which can manifest in architecture or in mathematics or in music or in literature. These are these are artifacts sloughed off. These are become artifacts sloughed off by the becoming of a of soul a of a culture, which is actualizing itself in space. And what Spengler is trying to do is he's trying to collect or look at what he calls the physiognomy of these things. So for those for the people who are listening to us who don't know what physiognomy is and 
My guess is that <laughs> our listeners have a <laughs> are overrepresented have a greater than population average understanding of what physiognomy, <laughs> physiognomy means. Yeah. Physiognomy is basically this idea that you can infer someone's inner state from their external appearance. So you had people <laughs> like who would say, a like, prominent eyebrow I, can, ridge. I can look at someone's <laughs> face and from that infer what they are like interiorly as a person. So he's applying this idea to history. So you take these fragments of the become, like, for example, the architecture of, of a particular culture or civilization, and we'll, we'll get into what culture and civilization are in the Spenglerian context. We'll put a pin in that. For example, you look at the art or the music, these physiognomic features, these become features, which are expressions of this becoming soul. And you can use those to try to work out what the soul is, what, what this becoming entity is by analysing the fragments of become that it has generated. And he says that you can use this, you can use this to understand the souls of these great cultures. And if you can understand all of these great cultures or enough of them, slowly you begin to understand what this, what the base layer of of a culture is what this sort of ur culture is this <laughs> the ur this culture, primordial yeah. culture <laughs> primary culture i love that term the ur culture so that's there are a lot of holes in that and to an extent that's just because in spengler everything refers to everything else and we're we're going to go over what history nature number etc are but i think that's sort of a contextualizing 30,000 metre view of, of what's going on. Yeah. So some of the key concepts mentioned in the introduction and um, we can riff on any one of these. Um, in addition to what you've already said, uh, yeah, so he, it's a comparative. So he, he very obsessed with like comparing things. So comparative civilization and cultural yeah. studies. Um, he's particularly interested in the decline of the West as opposed to the decline of, say, I don't know, say like Indian civilization. Um, he's interested in historical cycles. So he, th- he thinks these things have like a somewhat not entirely deterministic, like in, in the way that a ball's trajectory is deterministic, but somewhat deterministic in a cyclical sense, like more like deterministic in saying like a, a tree or a flower will bear seedling and then grow and then it will flower and then mm. wither and die. So Within that sort of broad brushstrokes, you can say what will happen within the lifetime of a flower, but you can't necessarily say like this petal will fall at this point. He also has um, what he calls a philosophical and scientific approach. What he mean? I guess we could talk about what he means by scientific approach to to his. Yeah, we can we can discuss nature versus history because I think from that. You can you can get at what he means by the scientific approach. Inspired by Goethe. Goethe. <laughs> <laughs> Have you read any Goethe? No, no, I haven't. I wonder if it, hmm, uh, would that be relevant to this show? Maybe I don't know. Yeah. So where should we go from here? Um, should we talk about? Let's, I think. Um, let's start with history versus nature, and yeah. from that, I'm sure we'll. We'll get sidetracked and explain quite a number of other other concepts that he 
he brings up is history versus nature is is a dichotomy that is very important in his worldview. So, oh, but then even discussing nature, like you have to start, you need to then discuss what number is. And I okay, think we, how, can, we can put number this is, aside. It's so I think we can definitely put number aside. Like it's obviously important, but there's a whole chapter on number. So, <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll get to number. Let's sort of with basically everything we say that. here. They're going to be a bunch of qualifications that we will need to explain certain concepts later because everything is so interconnected. So he sets out capital H history versus capital N nature as a dichotomy in understandings of the world. And he makes clear eventually that neither of these things are, are in a sense, true reality. Instead, both of these are ways that human beings take in sense experience or in his in his vocabulary, the alien, <laughs> yeah. and integrate it, integrate it into their, their sort of feelingscape of the world. That is to say, proper. The proper and alien is another, is another dichotomy because Spengler is all about those dichotomies. So from that perspective, the difference between history and nature is really how people interpret their their sense experience and incorporate it into their view of the world history involves viewing the world in a way that orders the things become with reference to their becoming what does that mean it was like (laughs) i was saying earlier how each culture each great culture is this soul with internal and this gets to what you were talking about with determinism with a set of potentialities which are inevitably expressed, inevitably actualized into the world, unless, unless that culture is cut short by some sort of catastrophe. But assuming the culture is allowed to live out its entire life cycle, because they have life cycles, the potentialities contained within that soul, latent within the soul, will, in the process of the soul's becoming through time, be actualized as things become they sort of harden and slough off this changing body of becoming of a becoming soul and history emphasizes the becoming soul and connects these these things become to that becoming compared to this nature capital n nature is a, a way of viewing the world which categorizes things becoming as things become. And so this is so annoying to, to, to listen to, I'm sure, rather than reading it. So in nature, instead of orienting your, your way of understanding the world towards looking at the changing soul which generates things become, instead you examine the sense data that you're presented with, these things become, and construct a worldview purely on the basis of those without reference to the becoming. I suppose it's, it's the difference between history, which is the consideration of something become in light of the becoming that has led to its present state, and nature, which is just looking at these things become and creating a system of laws, of systematising these things as a series of abstract non-particulars and then applying that to, to all of your sensory experience and saying that it holds for all time. Another big difference between history and nature is 
history is concerned with particulars, not abstractions. So I quote, Every happening is unique and incapable of being repeated. It carries the hallmark of direction, time, of irreversibility. As such, it's concerned with quality rather than quantity, and this is this is where he crosses over a bit into Evola land. Because Evola also made this distinction between viewing things quantitatively and qualitatively. Viewing things qualitatively, for example, qualitative time, is a view in which there is not time as this abstract entity that, that occurs irrespective of the contents of the time. It, or, it always has a distinct quality, and the events occurring within time change that nature of time, and that would be the historical view. Whereas the natural view is quantitative and much more concerned with abstracting things rather than viewing things as, as distinct qualitative becomings, I suppose, in Spengler's parlance. In some ways, I think you could describe nature as settled fact. You lose a bit of resolution in describing it as that, but I, in a fast and dirty way, you can regard nature as settled fact which is schematized in in abstract rules whereas history is the it's almost the infinitely complex sense experience that changes moment to moment from which you derive settled fact and i i think importantly like history is really about humans people yeah and civilizations um whereas nature is about the natural world so he's kind of drawing a distinction that there's like uh is it would you call it methodological it's like a methodological distinction between like how we think through and reason about the human world versus like the techniques that we bring to bear on on the natural world the way that we think about the natural world it's in a later chapter that he makes this distinction but i think this is a useful one for example talking about mathematics he says that the the, the, the natural treatment of mathematics is more interested in the rules generated by mathematics, whereas the, the historical view of mathematics is more interested with the people generating mathematical laws and why they, at least in Spengler's telling, are destined to describe the laws that they describe in the way that they describe them. And we'll get to the definition of destiny versus versus time as well <laughs> everything's connected with spengler <laughs> it's like that meme of the guy with like the the pins on the wall and all the, yeah, the conspiracy things. theory, conspiracy pin theory board. meme yeah from what is that like what did it show um it's always sunny <laughs> so funny um yeah should we give a high level idea of historical cycles yeah so one of the things that he doesn't like is this idea of a linear progress to history. Mm-hmm. That things will just become, you know, uh, and more prosperous or more liberty or whatever. Um, and he is not convinced about that for understandable reasons <laughs> for I mean, it's kind of like in, in it's in the title um and if you wanted to use uh the the standout example you'd look at the roman empire there's lots of other examples like egypt and, and that sort of uh I, I was 
dynastic China as well, probably, um, of like, okay, you have this culture that's like rises and experiences like a sort of a golden age and a lot of prosperity and then something goes wrong and it turns into, say, a despotic regime, sort of becomes sclerotic, dies, collapses, falls into disrepair, and then at some later point, like another culture will go through that sort of similar cycle. So he's looking at cultures and civilizations and he's got very he's got his own specific meaning what he means as a culture versus civilization and history in the sense that jack just explained uh goes through these cycles so for each particular culture or essence of like a people or whatever you want to say um although i don't even know if you'd call it like an essence of a people maybe that's not a good way to put it but for each culture it's going to go through this this life cycle of flourishing and then old age and then dying away. And there's sort of characteristic, um, uh, there's character, there's, there's characteristic properties of those different parts Mm. of the cycle. And he's kind of making a diagnosis of like, where is, where is Western European civilization at in that cyclical schema? Yeah. And he calls that, he uses the term contemporary, Again, in a slightly different way that we might normally use the term contemporary. I quote, I designate as contemporary two historical facts that occur in exactly the same relative positions in their respective cultures and therefore possess exactly equivalent importance. So within the life cycle of these, these cultures, they always, and it's, it's even like the, the time period that it takes to go through these different contemporary stages are the same they always express themselves. The, the becoming of a soul always expresses itself in actualized being in the same ways. How about actually I go through a little bit of what the alien and proper are, what soul and world are, and then use that to talk about how cultures evolve over time to try to get, give people an idea of, of what, what all of these these terms mean to further acquaint them with Spengler's way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So at the beginning of chapter two, he makes this distinction between alien and proper. What alien is, is it's the, the outer world, the world of sensation and perception. And in, in many ways, I think you can think of it as sense experience, how the, how the external world impresses itself upon you. And the proper is your inner life and feeling. And initially, as a child, the distinction between these two things is very blurry, or for someone in a very, very young culture. So your sense of an ego is another way of putting it. Your sense of your ego as separate from the world around you is much more porous. You've also got the distinction between soul and world. So the world is is the actual, and when he uses actual, he means things that are being, that exist in space. I should make sure to emphasize that for Spengler, things that are being have extension or exist in space, and things that are becoming have duration and exist in time and these categories are exclusive in that something which is being doesn't exist with duration and something which is becoming 
doesn't exist with extension. Otherwise, it would be being. As, as such, and this, this is just one of his first principles that you have to accept. And if you don't accept it, then things don't work. And if you do accept it, things, things do work. So soul is the possible. It's the becoming of something. And it's the sense of self as distinct from sense perception. So in some way, it's linked to proper. World is the actual. It's, the, it, it, it's, it's again, sense perception. It is what is exterior to you. It is the become things, the become in the world, things which exist in extension. So now what he does is from these concepts, he constructs a mechanism by which the, the soul, this becoming entity, generates things in the world. The development of the ego is the development of the soul from the world. So initially you exist and you don't really draw a distinction between your sense perception and your internal state. That's as a child. And eventually this distinction begins to emerge. And once the sense of soul is developed in opposition to the world, the soul begins to experience loneliness and longing. And this longing drives the soul in a process of becoming towards its goal. And what's this goal? Well, it's different for each soul. So each soul has within it these latent potentialities. And the goal is to actualize these inward possibilities. And he, he says that this is what life is. Life is actualizing in space these possibilities of a becoming soul. This also gives a sense of direction, this longing and this actualizing inward possibilities. And from that, our concept of time is derived. Mm. And now this process of becoming towards a goal gives us a sense of impermanence. And once we're able to, to conceptualize it, it gives us a sense of our inevitable death because we have this, this feeling of our, our soul constantly actualizing itself in the world. And it's always, it's always one directional. You always, and again, this is a first principle of his, the soul must actualize what is potential within it. And it can never do it twice. It can never do it again. This, this knowledge of inevitable death leads to dread. And to attempt to halt this process, we begin to form conceptual categories to, to name the alien. Remember, alien, alien is this world of sense perception that we feel is distinct from from our internal life of feeling, which he calls proper. And we try to fix the alien in place using a form language. And what this does is this tries to, to harden and to fix in place as being, as nature, the world around us to make it feel permanent, to try to overcome this feeling of dread, which is born of a sense of impermanence. And what he says is longing is anterior to dread within this schema within this scheme and longing is the experience of the proper confronted with the alien just as any becoming sloughs off static fragments of the become so too does longing slough off dread as knowledge so our knowledge is from our schematization of the external world in an attempt to stave off dread which is born of longing which is born of the development of the ego 
as opposed to the external world. The schema that arise from this, from this longing dread motor, he calls num he says is number. So for him, number is very, very expansively defined. It's not like one, two, three, four, or something like that. Instead, number is a culture's sense of of extension of the world of the become. And it encompasses all of the conceptual frameworks that are erected to try to order sense experience, not just something like um, how we do multiplication or something like that. And he spends a lot of time examining how cultures conceive of number, which he thinks is very important. I should add too, this idea of an individual with a you know the an individual proper being separated from the alien also applies to cultures these grand organic entities which give rise to cultures and civilizations cultures too have souls and that soul is the the process by which cultures have their life cycles with contemporary components of them which can be compared between cultures and also the the driving force behind why cultures inevitably die where do you want to go from that because it's it's hard to explain spengler because there are just it's just such an interdependent system yeah you, i guess you've sort of like started bleeding over into chapter 2 was there any yeah um was there any any other important like which is obviously hard to, hard not to do as you've said um do you think there's any other important notes on chapter one to make an important point of maybe the only other thing that think, i'd mention is just that like he's sorry what were you gonna say no no no. God. i was just gonna say i think arranging this around trying to explain the different concepts he uses is almost might be a better way might to do be it easier than, than trying to do it chronologically yeah, by chapter yeah um yeah, so on well then given that do you, should we just keep on unpacking the idea of number? Yeah, yeah. Um so with reference to what we were saying earlier about how there's yeah. this distinction between history and nature. The concept of number is fundamental to the natural worldview as opposed to the historical worldview. Cuz the remember the natural worldview is one that looks at the the become around us and then tries to order the world or understands the world purely in terms of this become around us. So the, the project of erecting these conceptual categories to order experience is, is a fundamentally natural approach to the world. Eventually in late civilization, um, we'll, we'll need to go over what civilizations versus cultures are, people, at least some people, cease to see the world in terms of history and see it purely as the the con- conceptual categories that that had been created and superimposed upon the world instead of seeing the world itself <laughs> stumped <laughs> how about this i'll give people what what the distinction between a culture and a civilization is because that's really important for spengler and will if it's if we define it clearly, we can just use those terms without having to worry about it yeah. too much, which will make our lives easier. So yeah. for Spengler, 
okay, these souls which manifest as great cultures all have life cycles, as we've said previously. And he he uses the metaphor of four seasons to describe them. And so in the at the beginning of a culture, the souls the souls always begin by actualizing themselves in the world as a culture. And these take certain forms. So there'll be there'll be mystical they don't have much of a natural sense. They have a much more instinctual, historical sense of the world. They tend to be full of taboos, full of mysticism, quite unsure of themselves like a child, but, but vigorous and expanding into the world around them. And as, as this soul actualizes itself into the world, you get more and more, you get more of a conceptual framework being imposed upon the world within a culture. Eventually, the culture is going to hit its zenith, and it inevitably does this, at which it's very confident it has applied conceptual schema upon the world, but it hasn't become rigid yet. It still has this this inner life. It still has potentialities to actualize in the world, to make into extensions in space. But eventually, that that inner reserve of potentialities will run out. So, for example, in the, the classical world soul, you're eventually going to hit Rome. And in the Romans, as compared to the ancient Greeks, this is a civilization. So a civilization is what happens when the soul of a culture runs out of potentialities to actualize. And the animating force behind what we see in the world this this world of extension dies it ceases to be becoming and becomes being this inevitably happens to any culture that a culture becomes a civilization and every culture has its civilization and the the way it exists in the world is different so civilizations become centralized so cultures tend to be decentralized in space so you have a lot of different smaller towns for example whereas a civilization tends to become concentrated in space in a few cities, eventually culminating in world cities. The civilizational worldview is much less mystical. It's more material. It's more causal. Because remember, in a civilization, the natural worldview is going to dominate the historical worldview because you no longer have this engine of becoming, generating, being. Everything is now being. Everything has been generated. You no longer are going to get great art because great art requires becoming. Again, this is just he just says this, and you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to suck it up. But at the same time, the mastery over the material world in civilizations is much greater than those of cultures because they're they're in some sense a much more embodied entity given that they are all extension rather than direction. They're all being rather than becoming. Over the course of a civilization, a civilization is inevitably dying because it doesn't have anything living generating it anymore. It's almost the the bleached coral structures once the coral has died off, these calcified deposits that are inevitably going to decay. As a civilization ages, Spengler says you often get a revived classicism so it starts to look back to its youth and tries to recapitulate the old forms of its youth 
And eventually this gives way to it looking even further back, it regressing further into its infancy, where it starts becoming submerged once more in mysticism. He calls it the second spirituality. It's this diffuse, vague mysticism, but one that, unlike the mysticism of a culture, of of a soul that is young, it's not linked to anything generative, to any becoming. Instead, it's just the the echo or sort of a pathetic retrogression into into confusion. It's not going to to develop itself and spread itself through the world. It's the the death of a of a of a world soul, and eventually it just ceases to exist. Yeah, and this is as opposed to um, again, he's setting this up in contraposition or in 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 um, contrast to just the idea of mm. like the liberal linear progression of history, and importantly, n- noting this uh, maturation of a culture into a civilization is like. Uh, core to the entire thesis. Um, maybe I'll I'll make a note that um, about the comparative element of what he's of whilst yeah, we're yeah, talking yeah, about this really important this uh, culture versus civilization. So one of his key criticisms of other thinkers, he criticizes this. The, uh, for example, he criticizes a scheme of history: ancient, medieval, modern. Like that's one of the things that he comes out and says, this is, yeah, yeah. I don't like this. And in particular, he's criticizing Western European thinkers for not taking into account the history of other cultures, such as the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Chinese, and the Indians. The, and I suppose you could make a point, he's, he's, in particular, he's pointing at high cultures, I suppose, for lack of a better word, or grand, great cultures. So he's not, for example, looking at, say, Maori culture or the culture of like a small tribe of people living in Papua, like the hills of Papua, Papua New Guinea or something. He's sort of looking at these, these large cultures that developed into civilizations, like the Sumerian yeah, civilization, yeah. the Babylonian civilization. So even in the Americas, like I'm, you know, you might point out the Mayans or the Aztecs would be relevant as opposed to say, um, the Comanche, maybe the Comanche haven't never developed into a civilization, um, according to Spangler's uh, <laughs> definition of civilization. Um, so one quote that I've got from here, uh, yeah, I don't think it's too long. Um, it says, do we not for the sake of keeping the hoary scheme dispose of Egypt? So what he's talking about is uh, the hoary scheme of Western history, ancient, medieval, modern. We dispose of Egypt and Babylon, each as individual and self-contained history, quite equal in the balance to our own so-called world history, from Charlemagne to the World War and well beyond it. As a prelude to classical history, do we not relegate the vast complexes of Indian and Chinese culture to footnotes with a gesture of embarrassment? As for the great American cultures, do we not, on the ground that they do not, quote, fit in with our ideas, um, entirely, we end up entirely, entirely ignoring them? So I, I found this really interesting because yeah he's trying and again this uh, is quite similar to Evler I suppose um he's looking cross culturally which I think um like for Europeans like in the 19th and 20th century it's really interesting when you read these thinkers like say Herman Hesse is a really interesting person who wrote uh Siddhartha 
these people who are trying to get their head around all of the information that's coming out of like the interactions sort of post-colonialism or like late stage colonialism um, of like learning about these other cultures from around the world. And, um, and in Spangler's schema, he's basically saying like, actually there's this more abstract logic that's occurring, which applies to, Egyptian, like ancient Egyptian culture and Babylonian culture, and it's also applying here in the West right now. Yeah, yeah. One of one of the other key ideas that's uh, that he's trying to get away from, or his criticisms, is uh, what he calls the Ptolemaic system of history, uh, which is basically the scheme of history in which all of the other great cultures, such as the Egyptians and the Babylonians, um, quote unquote, orbit around Western European history as planets around the sun. So in a funny way, what he's criticizing is uh, what the modern-day wokus would say, Eurocentrism. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's criticizing Eurocentrism. But his criticism is more like, well, that means we're making this mistake of creating this like uh, our, our Eurocentric understanding of history is making us blind to... Um, this this the true this physiognomy of, history, of the morphology, the morphology of cultures, of the, the Faustian world. <laughs> and so, one of the things he says is, uh, the system that is put forward in this work, in place of the Ptolemaic system of history, <laughs> and this uh, this is this is how much he backs himself. <laughs> he says, <laughs> "I love how confident he is. that's one of the real." <laughs> I place I regard as the Copernican discovery in in the historical mm, sphere. Mm, this mm. is the Copernican revolution. <laughs> Spangler's like I'm Copernicus of history, <laughs> in that it admits no sort of privileged position to the classical or the Western culture, as against the cultures of India, Babylon, China. Egypt, the Arabs, and Mexico, separate worlds of dynamic being, which in point of mass count for as much, for just as much in the general picture of history as the classical, while frequently surpassing it in point of spiritual greatness and soaring power. <laughs> he just backs him so much. It's really good so for you to bring that I up am because Copernicus. that's a really interesting part of Spengler's project and something that really bears emphasizing that he's profoundly culturally relativist yeah it's it's entirely a scheme of cultural relativism yeah yeah but there's like this this higher superstructure to history which kind of plays itself out in these culturally relative in these in these kind of hermetically sealed uh cultural life cycles (laughs) Mm, mm, mm. because yeah so within so he has a number of of great souls for example the the classical soul which gave rise in terms in terms of the physiognomy of it the physiognomy includes ancient greece ancient rome you know, the republic and the the empire for example or the magian soul which wasn't able to reach full maturity because it was cut off but that does include for example uh jewish tribes islam and then it it got cut off by our, our soul, at least for people listening in the West, which he calls the Western soul or the Faustian, whose, whose main characteristic is, is infinity and endlessness, all of, these, all of these have their own internal ways of knowing. For example, when he talks about mathematics and number, he says that there is no mathematic, there is only mathematics in that every different 
soul expresses itself or actualizes itself differently and leads to different ways of of understanding the world on behalf of its subjects or the the people composing it so that that all sounds very very culturally relativistic but like you said his ultimate purpose is to find whatever primordial culture underlies all of these in which case presumably there'll be certain things which aren't relativistic even if mm. those things are just okay so an example of something that he doesn't think is relative the life cycle of cultures yeah, or of souls not is not relative like that is that's fixed yeah. and highly deterministic for him in that these cultures have their potentialities they actualize these potentialities inevitably in the course of life or the inevitability is such that he says that life is the actualizing of these potentialities on behalf of a soul and it always takes the same amount of time yeah it's yeah it thanks for bringing up the relativist stuff because that's that's a really interesting Pretty component important. of Spengler. <laughs> and one that when i started reading this i didn't see coming so i would liken it to like he keeps on using this these like organic analogies so if you look at it like mm. the life cycle of a person like each person is going to have their own subjectivity of say like their internal experiences their own thoughts and emotions say and but each and so they're kind of hermetically sealed like i'm never going to feel your feelings i'll just feel my feelings <laughs> um but we will both follow the same life cycle of like infancy pubescence maturation elderliness and death <laughs> Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. that's kind of what he's thinking, but insofar as like these cultures are kind of autonomous entities maturing through this life cycle, um, this this deterministic life cycle, which happens to all cultures, but each culture it has its own sort of like internal subjectivity, which he would call, which is like the cultural relativism of mm-hmm. the people mm-hmm. living within that culture. You probably can't alter the life cycle of cultures in the same way that you can alter a human life cycle. For example, yeah. with technology, I'm all for the idea of a second puberty for men when we hit 50 and just start blasting trend. <laughs> Why wait until you're 50, mate? <laughs> <laughs> when you get to 25. When you hit 30. <laughs> so <laughs> when you're nine and you get that pre-puberty. <laughs> just jump, jump on, on Decker. Decker. <laughs> super physiological levels of Decker. <laughs> That's a good place to jump off to further examine Spengler's project because Spengler says that. Wait, 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 wait. These- sorry, 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 sorry to interrupt. I try not to do that too often. <laughs> Can I introduce one word? Uh, it's a Levi word. So yeah. it's a, it's actually a popper word, and I'm not going to go on a popper rant. Um, but <laughs> the idea is like framework. So popper, when he's talking, he popper had a big argument with the with the cultural relativists back in the day, and one of the ideas that he talks about is the framework, and the framework is like the, and I think even like. Thomas Kuhn uses is that how you pronounce his I've never Thomas Kuhn K U H N um, who who wrote the the structure of scientific revolutions the framework mm. is like the the intel, intellectual cultural historical literary so forth structure within which you're working and so there might be say like presuppositions mm-hmm. that are implicit in working within that structure and you you don't necessarily like question them or even know that you're using them as your thought. So mm, like mm. in a, a similar idea out of Marxism would be like um, like the class interest. 
So like your your so somebody from a particular class is always enacting that and thinking through the, and speaking through their class interest and giving voice to their class interest. Um, and the framework, the reason why I'm introducing that word is because like it's implicit in the way that Spangler is talking. He doesn't use the word framework, but um, maybe he there's a better word to use. Maybe maybe just saying like. Yeah, I don't know. I, that's why I'm using the word framework. Maybe, maybe you'll come up with a better word, Jack. Um, and so, like, say, like, the people living within, say, like, Western Europe, all of their cultural output is within the framework of the maturation cycle, the maturation of, of the culture into the civilization. So it's like they can't even really escape this thing inside their, that, that, that they're, in, they're inside mm, of. Mm. I get. I mean, he calls that destiny, like capital D destiny. Okay. I think is it's not a perfect overlap no. with what with framework, but it goes some of the way in that it's the destiny of people within a particular culture or civilization. Yeah, yeah. To to have a worldview concordant with that civilization. Yeah, or, or culture. And so the way that I'm thinking about it now is almost like the say all the artifacts, like the literature and stuff that are become as a consequence of the the culture um going through its life cycle and turning its potentiality into actuality from the ins that's so that's kind of an outside in description what what um spangler is giving like we see these cultural artifacts like cathedrals and that's because that's a becoming that's a become element of the becoming of the culture mm. and but from the inside out the person who's created that cathedral, the people who created that cathedral, they're operating within the framework of the the becoming of that culture. Yeah, yeah. And um, there, there was one one other thing that I wanted you to to, to to talk about, or if you want to talk about it, because it's really it's really funny. He, he, you used this word before, Faustian. <laughs> Do you want to talk a little yeah. bit about what he's talking about? More he says, Faustian, <laughs> Faustian culture. So with can get at this through this idea of framework because that's a really good way of looking at it. I think framework, you can get some of the way towards explaining framework in Spenglerian terms using destiny. So this idea that a soul inevitably actualizes its internal possibilities. Combination of that and mathematics. So how mathematics is the, at least for Spengler, this rigid conceptual framework that you you place upon sense experience to start being able to to pass it so both those things are determined by the internal possibilities of a culture and those things seem to be inborn so whatever process produces cultures maybe spengler later in the book describes it but as of yet he hasn't gone over the mechanism by which a culture is is born to use the metaphor of a a life cycle but somehow these cultures are are made with these internal possibilities that must be followed and for the western soul the thing that really defines the western soul as compared to we can we can compare and contrast actually the classical soul with the western soul is infinity it's this this faustian grasping for infinity and never stopping as opposed to the the classical soul which is much more concerned with enclosure and 
that enclosure manifests itself in several ways. So we can look at mathematics. I did like how he was comparing the maths of the two cultures, <laughs> and I found this really interesting. So, so classical mathematics is, yeah, you can view it as being defined by enclosure. So in terms of their, their counting, it's all integers. So the, their idea of- yeah. nature abhors vacuum, baby. <laughs> yeah, how for them- an irrational number. <laughs> well, they was, called it irrational. <laughs> was that a modern thing? Yeah, it's it's not merely something that it's a combination of things. So for them, they felt that it was incredibly threatening because chaos threatens to invade whenever you have something almost blasphemous like an irrational number. Mm. But it's also something yeah, that they they would have regarded as just incoherent. So for someone of the Western spirit. You take, take the integers one and two. Between one and two, we don't have a... Uh, it's, it's conceptually difficult when you really drill into it, but at least just for the purposes of arithmetic or something, we don't have problems with acknowledging that there are an infinite number of numbers between those two points. Like, it's, it's an infinite spectrum. Yeah, it's a continuum. And, yeah, and we can do that with... Our notation. Okay, so between one and two. Okay, one and a half. And then you can have 1.51 and then just just keep putting decimal points and just we can conceptualize that. Oh, you can just keep doing that forever. Whereas for the 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 person of the classical soul, that's just that's incoherent. It just does not make sense. Well, uh I don't want to, no, should I do it? No, I'll just be a little bit pernickety. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just because I, I really like this stuff. Firstly, shout out to um to another book called Number um, by Tobias something or other. One of my favorite favorite books. It's such an amazing book. Um, what the Greeks were particularly like. It's this. It's like a history of of the development of of numbers um, and mathematics. It's, a, it's an amazing book. Um, uh, the Greeks. So a, a rational number being any number where you can put a and b over one another where A and B are both integers. Um, whereas an irrational number is like one where you can't do that. So there might be some number that's like 1.3456789910, like a bunch of like a whole bunch of digits, but at some point it's going to stop and you can there will be some two integers where you can find A and B. You can put them over the top of one another. Um, I better not be fucking this up. <laughs> Otherwise I'll sound like a complete cockhead for like for like being particularly. Um, whereas the Greeks are like, okay, but there's no there's no such thing as like a, a number where you can't find an A and a B for it. <laughs> That's why they didn't like pi. And and uh, yeah, in, in particular pi like freaked them out. Pi and mm. there was an, there was another number that they freaked out about, <laughs> and they were on this like quest to find the two integers that could approximate pi, and it partic in particular it comes from Pythagoras. Like Pythagoras, and there are other people as well, but like Pythagoras and his cult were like obsessed with the almost like the the abstract beauty of integers, mm. Mm. as opposed to like when Spangler was writing, there was all these like massive like breakthroughs in mathematics. And like set theory, in particular, Gödel and his in incompleteness theorem. Like, anyways, I'm now talking too much about maths. <laughs> instead, <laughs> instead, talk about Spengler. Um, uh, I think another example of where Spengler says that the Greek Greek soul is defined by enclosure, and the Western by infinity is 
Yeah, that's a good one. Is that West, Western numbers can be thought of as functions? Yeah. Well, the, and the idea of a function is something alien to the classical soul, whereas the classical soul likes things to be, thinks of things as magnitudes. So of these def- defined quantities that are optical. So that if, if you can visualize it, then it is. But then something like a five-dimensional shape, which using Western mathematics, you can describe in terms of coordinates or relative to one another. Yeah. Which using classical mathematics isn't possible. It's just it's not a a thinkable thing. So good. It's so good. Fucking love this shit. So I found this really funny, like reading this book, because on my on my uh, on my wrist, I've got two tattoos. I've got it on on my wrist. On one wrist, I've got uh, an infinity symbol, <laughs> and on my other wrist, I've got a Sanskrit word um, anicca, which means impermanence. Um, and so I was thinking, like, wow, this like this guy is just like directly criticizing, <laughs> like, well, like, wait, actually, no, if. Evola would be criticizing my impermanence tattoo and Spangler would be criticizing my infinity tattoo. <laughs> well, the infinity's fine because you're a, you're a Faustian. Because I am a, a Faustian. <laughs> yeah, so that's fine. <laughs> yeah, he, he seems to think that the function is really, really important to understanding how the Western soul works. Well, it, definitely for him because functions are about finding correspondences between sets. And he's definitely yeah. all about finding those correspondences between completely fucking unrelated <laughs> sets. <laughs> yeah, how the, the Western soul is, it has left behind opticality. I mean, I guess that's, <laughs> if, if we're discussing Spangler, then I can just start making up words. Too. <laughs> so the optical nature of something in terms of, for example, geometry, can you visualize it or can't you? And for classical geometry, you were dealing with concrete, visualizable shapes, whereas post Descartes, the the Western geometry is pure relation. So it's just it's the relationship between points on an abstract plane, which can extend infinitely in any direction. Hmm. So interesting. So my again, I don't want to spend too much time criticizing, and I don't think we've done too much criticism on this, but what. I'll just slip in a small criticism here. The issue that sort of like immediately came to mind for me thinking about cultures as hermetically sealed and mathematics is that mathematics has been creative. Like a a Faustian Westerner living in the 1930s could pick up the mathematics of a Greek or an Arab from Baghdad in you know a thousand years ago and like they can use it it's not like they can't understand it they can in fact mathematics has been a creative like we've been able to make advances in mathematics standing on the advances of previous generations of mathematicians and engineers and stuff and he doesn't like address this at all it's like if if these cultures and the people in these cultures are like hermetically sealed and can't understand one another then how come like a western european living in the 1930s can pick up the mathematics of a hellenic greek philosopher and he just it just seems like that thought just never occurred to him if these if these elements of of uh these become artifacts um and if these things are like so culturally relative then how come we can understand across cultures something as as like become as as 
our mathematical our mathematical insights. That was just one of the things that came up to me. Right. I mean, I'll try to be yeah. Spengler. <laughs> yeah, Spenglerbot. Spenglerbot two point He 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 does address aspects of this. So he says that the reason why we think that there is continuity between classical mathematics and Western mathematics is that we've retained a lot of the notation of classical mathematics, but it just it means really different things now than it did previously. Like um, symbolically or... Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how for them a, a number was just thought of as, as a magnitude, as a concrete magnitude, whereas for yeah. us numbers, you can make numbers into functions very easily. So for us, the, the concept of number is much more fluid and always contains infinity, or at least can be made to contain infinity. In terms of the, I guess what you're talking about is backwards compatibility in that someone who, someone can <laughs> yeah, understand. I guess that's way, one way of putting yeah. it. Yeah. Like we can use numbers for magnitudes as well. Yeah. I think that that backwards compatibility isn't addressed. No, I mean, there's because he, mean, he straight up says that mathematics is not not a continuous process of knowledge accretion. He says it's discontinuous every time that you have a new a new world feeling or a new culture arise. Yeah, yeah. The the backwards compatibility problem is yeah, and we don't want to spend too much to time just going through criticisms because otherwise we'd be here all day. And also, like. I don't know. Like, it's interesting enough to just like go through what he thinks. But yeah, there's points at which I might just stop and say like, "Oh, but he didn't think about this." Like, it's pretty important. Um, I think I, probably all my criticisms of Spengler can be derived from this this one big problem I have with him. <laughs> it's similar to Evola in that he has all of these first principles that you just have to accept. It's uh, okay. Being and becoming exist in the way that Spengler says and correspond to each other in the way that Spengler says. If you don't agree with that, then just nothing works. And he doesn't he just tells you that it's this way. Yeah. And if you don't agree, then he doesn't explain it. Then you you simply like nothing nothing else works. Yeah. And And so as you said with criticism of Spengler (laughs) are going to be at root some variation of that. So maybe I could just say that and like that is my criticism. Just why and that's a huge (laughs) problem. My, it doesn't stop this book from being really fun because it is really fun. But in, in terms of a, a concrete view of how reality functions, it feels a bit too arbitrary for me, at least so far. Yeah, I guess while we're on it. My, my key criticism, which hasn't been addressed yet, but it might be, is that he in, the, the main one is the assertion of culture in the way that he's positing it so implicitly in what he's saying is that like not implicitly i suppose it's quite explicit is that cultures are like these autonomous entities and they have these like laws like life cycles that apply to them and what we're seeing is like the the um the consequences of those life cycles but like Jack said, it's just like he just says that's the case. And it's the yeah, but why question. And it's just like, okay, but like where did the culture come from? What exactly is it? Like it's just the becoming. It's like it's just like, what <laughs> what do you mean it's the becoming? <laughs> like um and 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 then and also why is it the case that 
that ha- they have these structures like this to their life cycle, for example. Um, and why doesn't it apply to like there's so many other cultures around? Why have you drawn this distinction between like the high grand cultures that became civilizations? And why don't you look at all the other hundreds of cultures and um, ones that have been around for thousands of years, which don't apply? Like you know, so there's and if if you just kind of like put uh, as Jack was saying, like if you just kind of like put those criticisms. It's, it's like suspended disbelief when you're watching Star Wars or something. You just say, like, <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to just pretend that sound doesn't need a medium through to travel through and that we can hear the explosion of the Death Star in, you know, the abyss of space. <laughs> like, if I just put that aside, then, yeah, sure, there's an explosion and I can hear it. Why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, for, like, theatri- the- theatrical purposes. And sort of if you just say, like, okay, fine, um, there is this thing called a culture... <laughs> And it's like autonomous, and it exists somehow in reality, but in sort of, it must exist in some sort of plane of existence other than the natural world that we see. But it can somehow interact with the natural world and creates these artifacts. And no person living in a particular culture really has any sort of like autonomy from that culture. But it's more just like a conduit through which the culture expresses itself. If I just accept that, <laughs> then fine. Let's go along yeah. for the ride. Let's go along for Spangler's um, two-volume, thousand-page book. It's like a ghost train ride. Like you just you, you keep your hands and feet inside the vehicle yeah. at all times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And don't like try to pull on anything too much. And it's it's a lot of fun. It is really fun reading through something and. He'll be throwing out all this wacky terminology and drawing all of these analogies between different things. And if you stay within the confines of the ghost train ride, you can actually think, yeah, I, I really see how you reach this conclusion. And that's really fun. <laughs> what I don't understand is he was a politician and like he had a serious career. He was really well known in his time. Yeah. He was like really influential, <laughs> and this is what he thought. This is how he thought the, the decline of the West worked. was really, really yeah. influential in his time. And and like and um and like he also managed to like do things like tie his shoes <laughs> and feed himself. Like to me, when I read books like this, you know, like it's it's all well and good to read a funny book like I don't know the Satanism book, like the Black Book of whatever, um, hmm. or like I don't know another funny book like the um, xenofeminism or something, where I'm like, oh, this is weird and wacky and, you know, it's a bit of fun. And, and you know, but, you know, if, if these people don't take take this stuff too seriously, I can sort of see how they operate in the world. And then I read something like Evola or Spangler, and I'm like, this guy spent 10 years writing this fucking book. This is, like, genuinely what this guy thinks and believes and thinks the way the world and works. And it's so all-encompassing it's as All-encompassing. Well. It, it must affect everything that he does. Like, he thinks this is literally, like, the way the world works, and this is how he interprets his experience of, the, of reality. And it's just completely alien to the way that, to the way that I view the world. It's fun to read, too, because he was clearly so smart. Yeah. Like, it, just, it comes off every single page. This guy was... So smart. And that's part of the fun of it, is reading someone who is clearly extremely highly intelligent, who just holds such an alien view of how the world operates to me. And that's part of that's part of the fun of reading Spangler. And or I, just, I wonder what would have just like got him to just like think, hmm, what's where's like why didn't you know he's writing this book like he's very self-assured, you know, like Evola mm. <laughs> and mm. like a lot of the authors that we read. Um and I just wonder, like, did 
did nobody just like did was there ever a moment where he just thought like maybe i'm wrong <laughs> like where am i going wrong here like 900 pages in <laughs> or yeah i don't know yeah anyways um should do you reckon we're kind of we've covered all of the concepts large brushstrokes in one and two but i don't necessarily mm. feel like we've sort of moved on to chapter three yet so maybe we could start that. i think we've done we've actually covered most of three because a lot of three physiognomic going into going into more detail on the difference between nature and history yeah and which, which we covered earlier on in the episode and then the different the morphologies we could discuss briefly morphologies We've talked about the, the physiognomic morphology. Yeah. Already. Let's talk about morphologies. And the other thing to talk about, maybe we can talk about this first really quickly, is universal history. Mm. And then talk about morphologies. Because universal history is probably a little bit smaller. Um, like, so basically, a universal history is like trying to create like a unified narrative of like human history as such. Yeah. Um, and he calls that world history in this book. But his he thinks that like that ignores the like the individuality, the uniqueness, the idiosyncrasies of each particular culture, um, uh, which he thinks is like um, is kind of. I, I suppose he must think it's like a deeper explanation of what's happening. Like in oh, all okay, so sorry. Yeah, when I say world history, when you talk about universal history, it depends on how universal you're talking. So if you're talking about universal history is in in Spengler's context, in terms of the the natural or the systematizing morphology of history, where you just view history as this a series of events. And if you just notate all of the events, then that's history. Then that's not world history, according to him. If you have an even more universal yeah. history yeah. than that history. If you try to examine enough and and elucidate the character of enough of the great souls of the great cultures and then use that to understand the, <laughs> the primordial culture, then that is world history. And that's the that's a more universal history. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's just it's just so fucking ambitious. Like, no matter how many problems I have with this book, it is so so wildly ambitious that I can't help but really like it. <laughs> like, look, this fucking guy sat down and was like, you know what? I'm going to solve history. I'm going to solve it to the <laughs> point where we can predict the future. We can get, we can get like a few archaeological remnants from a culture we've never heard of. We can get them and go, okay, contemporaneously if we if we look at the physiognomy of these <laughs> what does it say about where it is in terms of its contemporaneous so where does it sit relative to the life cycle of other cultures from mm. that you can reconstruct using spengler's method the entire culture and civilization from that point it's like that was this guy's project it was just so ambitious suppose in that way he's kind of a reductionist isn't he like um the duality of spengler is he's incredibly <laughs> reductionist and unbelievably expansive at the same time <laughs> um yeah so um universal history is more like uh is is a part of that criticism of like the people that he's criticizing that are uh, 
like you can have like a single a single history for all of human civilization mm. rather than like distinct histories of each culture. Yeah. So yeah, that's and so his civilizational cycles and his comparative classification of cultures and civilizations is kind of his rebuttal to this universal history thing. Yeah, yeah. And the idea of progress and like especially like potentially infinite progress. Um actually that that tangentially reminded me of something that is worth bringing up <laughs> that when when talking about how these cultures ultimately like a member of one culture ultimately can't understand the proper of someone who exists in another culture. Yeah. It begs the obvious question, how can Spengler write a work of world history? <laughs> yeah, but you're, and you're that thinking is because, too much, Jack. <laughs> no, no, no. He does it. He he addresses this. He spends a lot of time talking about this. And it's because, because of the very nature of the Western soul is one that grasps for infinity and is acutely historically aware in that we don't have a problem casting our minds back to to times thousands and thousands of years ago. Whereas, for example, the Greek soul was ahistoric in that they existed in a continuous mythological present. As soon as, say, Julius Caesar died, he was immediately incorporated into a mythological sense of the Mm. world in which his death was almost like the death of a god, which was always imminent in the same way that his death was always imminent. It's always transmuted into this mythological present. Mm, mm. Because a because the Western soul admits for this sort of historical infinity, it allows one to have distance, almost infinite distance, from, from history and from the particularities of history, from the natural approach to history. And from that vantage point, Using Spengler's comparative method, you can develop a world history. So <laughs> I just, I just thought I, it's worth adding that in. It's I like why that Spengler's like, project within his framework is even possible, and he does address it. This like special pleading of like, except in my situation. <laughs> um, well, it's almost he's saying the reason why it's happening now in a Western culture is because it it can happen. Given the nature or given the essence of, or like the, the, um, I want to say personality. Can I just say personality? Like the personality of Western culture. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Yeah. I can like, I mean, within the context of his ideas, like that actually makes sense though. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which is what I was saying before, why this is fun. How, if you get immersed enough in Spengler's world, Things like the justification as to why he can write a world history makes sense. It's just if you step outside of it, you're like, yeah, I guess, but but why? Uh, so was there anything else from chapter three that we wanted to talk about? Did we want to talk about systematic versus physiognomic? We've spoken about yeah, yeah. Physiognomic. We've already talked about physiognomic, but yeah, go over systematic. So and what morphology is? <laughs> so we've got like. So he says two aspects of world history. One he calls systematic and one he calls physiognomic. Um, So systematic, he's looking at like exploring overarching patterns and similarities. Um, 
can we give an example? Let's see if I give an example. I think even more broadly, though, like morphology is just a way of comprehending the world. And this maps on really, it, it maps pretty tightly onto the distinction between natural and historical, systematic and physiognomic, which are the two forms of morphology. And the systematic is concerned with extension and space and remembering that become only has extension and becoming only has duration. And so the systematic basically lines up all the things become, the things that have the quality of quantity, things that are causal. It lines them up and then makes a worldview, your way of comprehending the world, only based on that, only based upon these fixed dead schema that we impose upon, upon sense experience. Physiognomy is kind of like you are also looking at these things become in the world, but instead of looking at those and going, okay, that's everything, let's make laws based on these things become and then use those laws to predict other things become, which is the systematic morphology. The physiognomic looks at things become as symbols, which symbolize the nature of the becoming which formed them as it actualized itself into the world. I think that that's the, that's the distinction between them. And then, yeah, he mm. applies those to history. Mm. It's like you can analyze history from a systematic perspective. Like he, he just fires constant shots at Immanuel Kant. <laughs> Immanuel Kant. Just every now and then. <laughs> every now and then he'll just, like, he'll just, like, he'll just start... <laughs> It's just talk like about how he was a shit talk head. shit about talk shit about the critique <laughs> of pure reason. And to me, it just seems like it does it like he'll just put it in there. It's just like unnecessary. Just take a pot shot. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. it. It just made me want to meet Spengler and see what he's like as a person. Um, and yeah, then you have the physiognomic way of approaching history, which for Spengler is, of course, the right way to do it. Mm, mm, mm. Actually, from all of this, we can now say why this work is called Decline of the West, at least in English, because in German, I forget the German name for it. I don't speak German, but my wife does, so I asked her what it meant. And it has a slightly different meaning to the Decline of the West, but at least in English, it's called the Decline of the West because from all of this, it's fairly obvious that the West as well will decline inevitably. And we are in, we are in fairly late civilization already. In the West, we've passed the time of culture and we are very much in the megalopolitan world city time, which explains why we, and I say we as in you and I specifically, love, love the natural worldview, why we default to the natural causal worldview, which is quite yeah, alien to most Faustian people. Little because Faustian we're bitches. <laughs> not merely Faustian, but we are... We are late civilization. <laughs> late civilizational Faustian in the throes of decay. <laughs> yeah, civilizational yeah. decay. Getting ready for Caesarism. How come every... Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, the rise of Caesarism. Um, how come there's so many... Is it just because we run this this, this podcast? Maybe it's, just, maybe it's just because... Is there a selection it. bias at work for <laughs> what I think you're about bias. to ask? <laughs> like, why are there so many people so obsessed with like, like the end of like civilizational decay and degeneracy, and like the end of the end of the West? I don't know. Like, 
So it, it depends on how psychoanalytic you're willing, how much psychoanalysis you're willing to tolerate from me. <laughs> Do it, go, fucking go, have at it, mate. <laughs> Most people are scared of their own death, of, of an end to whatever their existence is. Mm. And in the same way, one's culture is so deeply embedded in them that I think most people, whether they're cognizant of it or not, are scared of the end of their culture. Like that's a, the si- signals signifying the, the end of your biological life tend to register very loudly for a person. <laughs> Similarly, any signals for the end of their culture, for the context within which they, they find meaning and exist, register very loudly. For that reason, I think people are extremely sensitive to any hint that this culture and this context that they exist in might mm. end, that it is Inclusive. a constant source of fascination. I wonder to what extent mm. it, it is in other cultures. I have a hard time believing that it would be a purely European slash European oh, no, you've got the Kali derived Yuga. culture thing. You've oh got yeah, the Kali Yuga, Yuga, the yeah. idea of the Kali Yuga. You've got the idea, like the I Ching has stuff around, like predicting the end of the world. Like there's obviously the apocalyptic stuff in the Bible, like in Revelations and stuff. So mm-hmm. like, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, like and, yeah. So uh, in in the same yeah. way that so much human artistic output is ultimately med- meditating upon our eventual demise, our inevitable <laughs> yeah. demise. I guess this a is lot, like a lot terror. of stuff about culture is also about the. The, demise the of end world. of culture or of there's, a particular culture. There's like personal death terror and then there's like abstracting it or projecting it or whatever mm. you want to use the word into like a cultural death terror. Because there's there's like there's this fascination of like the end of the world, like the apocalypse, mm. you know. Mm. Like uh, uh, there's this uh, uh, Christian, uh, US Christian uh, movie series, I think it's called, taken away or something about um it's like this whole series of of like they're like drama kind of fake documentary things about like people living through the end times and the apocalypse and like all the christians all the good christians disappear like say there's a plane flying through the air and like all the christians including the pilots disappear and so all the non-christians are like left there to witness the end of the world as the plane is like crashing and stuff it's it's, it's <laughs> like it's like apocalypse christian apocalypse porn <laughs> yeah and, and um, Chris, christianity is and is an apocalyptic like it, yeah, religion. it, it is yeah. an apocalyptic religion yeah my christian friends seem to actively like want the end of the world <laughs> like, they, like they seem to not exactly get giddy about it but it's like it's not exactly a bad thing for like jesus to return you know <laughs> um, no, if 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 you exist within that that framework of meaning it's not merely not a bad thing but it's a good thing yeah you want it to happen yeah but we've been living in the end times for the last two thousand years so um yeah i i but just I think, I think that that obsession with or the f- obsession, fascination, fascination with the end something. of, with the end of not just end of life, but end of culture. With this, yeah, the end of this thing that gives you meaning and contextualizes your life is everywhere. So, yeah, I know, fucking the Fallout video game series. What's that about? So good. It, in large part, it's about the <laughs> it's the end like of the, world. The, the end of our current oh yeah, well, civilization it's a huge part and of science fiction. That. For sure, that trend, and so Spangler's just taken it to taken it to the next fucking level. 
Yeah, yeah. He wins. Spangler fucking wins at this. <laughs> for providing, yeah, providing the theoretical framework for Fallout New Vegas. <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, to be fair on Spangler, though, he did just witness World War One. Which, as yeah. everybody who's listened to this show, our episode of Junger, shout out to past Levi and Jack. Um, mm, mm. Uh, like Junger, we got to see a little bit of the pure terror and chaos and hellishness of World War One. So to be fair on a German intellectual trying to make sense of what the fuck just happened to his country, like, maybe it's kind of fair yeah. for him to think that he's living in the end times. <laughs> yeah. I think with the decline of the West, he that there are a bunch of things in it that I simply just don't agree with in terms of how the world functions. However, it's far from a bad book or a, a bad um, group of books because it's in two volumes because it's a sincere attempt by a really, really smart person to try to understand the world around him. And he set himself such ambitious goals that, like, yeah, you're, you're going to get a bunch of stuff wrong. And I really, really enjoy that sort of ambition. He gets five stars for ambition. Yeah, I am enjoying it. He gets myself. five stars I, and I potentially like six episodes on this, on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so do you reckon oh, we're at the I end forget, of this actually, episode? We need to give Trent a shout-out. Shout-out to Trent because he's been asking for this this book or this series to be covered for so long and we keep saying that we were going to do it and then not doing it so we're finally doing it trent shout out to trent also i i, I hate you so much <laughs> Wait, <what? laughs> for making me read this book <laughs> i'm i'm taking it with with a, a, a chin up and and like a good spirit and trying to make fun of it but there's just moments when i'm reading it where i'm like oh my god <laughs> Can't do no, this guy. This. I <laughs> really enjoy it. this sort of thing. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just mentally ill enough that I enjoy the intellectual system, even if I don't agree with it. Yeah, maybe that's more of a consequence of like I come out of like doing work or something, like programming a computer, and then I just sit down and think, oh fuck. <laughs> 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 uh, whereas, like, you're kind of in the, you're like, you know, you're doing your fiction writing. I guess it's kind of like you're in, you're in a kind of in a mindset which I, it might almost be conducive of being able to like mm. jump into something like this <laughs> <laughs> uh, interesting um do you reckon anyway, we've covered enough of these first three chapters to end the episode this, yeah i'd say episode? so and each subsequent episode we're just going to be constantly building upon this this series of definitions that we've set out we can often offer more concrete examples to next episode of things yeah. yeah, and I promise that my my uh, audio will be recorded and uploaded for, for all subsequent episodes of Spangler. <laughs> we won't have an Evola repeat. <laughs> the lost. Oh, we're going to re-record at least Revolt Against the Modern World. I expect. Or we, no, well, I think what we'll do is we'll uh, record Levi reacting to Jack's half. It's <laughs> <of the laughs> a YouTube react channel. <laughs> um. No, cool. Well, do we have anything to say to the audience? Uh, are, are we hocking your book yet? Are you hocking it in the in the intros now? Yeah, in the intros I am, but okay. keep hocking it now. I've yeah, got okay. a novel so called Jack- Tower coming out soon. And I read an early edition. I read an early edition, like, a, sorry, edition, um, revision, an early revision of it, and it was really good. Um, so I haven't read any of the recent revisions, but Ed and I are reading the actual, like, um, the final product. like the actual thing that he's selling <laughs> for the show <laughs> and we'll be ed and i will be doing an episode um in november for um 
well, we're going to record it in October, but um, it'll be released like early November um, uh, ahead of ahead of Jack Jack actually um, publishing the book. So yeah, get excited for that. It's a it's a very good read. Nothing else to add. Uh, um, next episode next week is it a Q and A episode? Yeah, to give us a bit of breathing yeah, room. To to give a little bit of breathing room. We might need another another participatory episode of some sort too, because this is this is a really like I don't know about reading another fucking text on top of this. Like I don't, I, we might have to revise our our schedule that we spoke mm, about mm. the other week. Um, this is a lot more difficult than I was expecting. <laughs> yeah, this is not an easy book. Um, yeah, yeah, we so can do Q&A a sacred games up. or something like that. Yeah, or um. Yeah, or like an article or something, like a short article or something. Yeah. We'll find something. Anyways, or I mean, find anybody something. on the Discord, if you if you want, whilst we're still recording episodes for um, Decline of the West, shoot us a, a, uh, a suggestion <laughs> about shorter things that we can read. Thanks for listening.